You are now listening to Afrobeat Radio, a public affairs program presenting African perspectives on global issues. I am Willie Jacobs. Thank you for joining me today on a very special show with my very, very special guests, two remarkable ladies, choreographer, dancer, scholar, Halifu Osumare, and poet, novelist, playwright, Intozaki Shange. They're both in the studio with me, which makes it even more special. They will both be at the Roosevelt House at Hunter College for readings from their books, readings, book signings, Q1A, and, you know, just to hang out with you so it's an opportunity for you to meet and get to know them a little bit more. So I hope you'll be there at the Roosevelt House to honor and celebrate with them. Dr. Halifu Sumare is Professor Emerita in the Department of African American and African Studies at University of California, Davis, and was the director of AAS from 2011 to 2014. She has been a dancer, a choreographer, arts administrator, and scholar of popular black culture for over 40 years with a PhD in American Studies from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Welcome to Afrobeat Radio. Thank you so much, Wee Jacobs. I appreciate being here and conversing with you today. You're most welcome. We're most honored to have you. Dr. Oshimari, Halifu Oshimari, is the author of several books, including the one that is the basis of our conversation today, which is titled Dancing in Blackness, a memoir, recently published. This is a fantastic book, and um, she's also author of several other books. I want to say to you that Dancing is Blackness, I read it cover to cover. Um, it is a fascinating book for somebody who is an African in the diaspora, meaning somebody who, who was raised on the continent, now in exile. I like to believe I'm in exile. <laughs> <laughs> in the diaspora. And somebody who also studied literature and theater. Uh, you, you get a lot of information from textbooks. But the context of Dancing in Darkness is way beyond what you would get in a classroom because it's more like a book about the cultural history of America. We often talk about the politics of the 1960s, the civil rights movement. Many of us know a lot more about that. But there is so much more context in terms of the culture, the struggle to define who African-American people are, to recover memory of their ancestry and their history. You don't get to hear about the role that dance played in that process or the role that cultural administrators play because, you know, things fall between the cracks. We focus on the so-called solid materials of history and in my own estimation, this is it's like this book filled so many cracks for me. Mm -hmm. And so Thank you. The conversation today is going to be about the book and also about 
another book, very interesting book, which is a collection of poems. Also in the studio with me, New York's most <laughs> esteemed playwright, poet, and cultural activist, Miss Intozaki Shange, a playwright and poet, a feminist, and somebody who helped to define the struggle of black women within the context of the changing times in America. Miss Shange is best known for the OBE award-winning play for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. She's also written several other novels, including Sassafras, Cypress and Indigo, Lillian and Betsy Brown, a novel about African-American girl who runs away from home. She is the recipient of several honors and awards and fellowships, uh, very prestigious ones. Um, welcome to Afrobeat Radio and to WBI. Mrs. Well, thank you. Yes. Um, I want to let you know that uh, I'm very honored to have you with us. When I arrived in the United States in the 90s, for Colored Girls was all over the area. It was, you know, one of those things that uh, cultural experiences that was very prominent in New York. Oh, good. And I'm glad to know that you live in Brooklyn. No, not anymore. <laughs> oh, not anymore. Not anymore. I was in Brooklyn for seven years and I moved five years ago to Maryland. Oh, okay. Well, um, let me, I'll let you know that I'm beginning to miss you already because I, I was... <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, so welcome to Afrobeat Radio, uh, ladies. And um, thank you. So I, you I want much. to begin this conversation um, with, you know, with your friendship. And reading Halifu Shumari's book, clearly she wrote a lot about you and your collaboration. So I'm not really going to talk about that because I want people to buy the book so that they can read it themselves. <laughs> Yeah, don't give too much away. <laughs> exactly. But I'm curious, what was it that attracted you to each other that's beyond your creative collaborations that sustained your friendship for so long? Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. You want to start? Okay, I, I'll start. Well, I... I um, Grew up in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. Grew up in San Francisco and moved to Oakland as an adult. Uh, I um, was recently back in the Bay Area after having lived in Europe for three years and uh, dancing professionally here in New York with the Rod Rogers Dance Company. So when I returned home after approximately a five-year hiatus away, um, I started hearing about this uh, woman having this show on uh, a radio station similar to this. It was a, a community-oriented radio station Kepu. in Kepu uh -huh. in the Bay Area. And the kind of music that she was playing, the eclecticism of the music and the the poetry that was being read on her show really made me stand up, listen, and say, who is this woman? Uh -huh. And um, uh, as they say, the rest is history. We, uh, I was teaching dance. She started taking my dance classes. Um, there was a burgeoning um, 
uh, a scene on uh, in the Bay Area of dancers, Ed Mock, Raymond Sawyer, and Intazaki was not only interested in her writing, but also dance and how they intersected. And so it was just natural that we began to uh, to collaborate and come together and find a personal friendship. Yeah, the radio show is called The Original Aboriginal Dancing Girl. Mm. <laughs> And I I, uh, I would have um, Monday or Wednesday nights when I would have an hour of live musicians and improvisation, and I would do poetry. Or I'd invite poets to come improvise poetry on the radio show. So it was like having a, a jazz solo on the air, like they used to have in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And so I was hoping to recreate that sensation for the listeners in the Bay Area well, I was sure had never experienced that. I think I was right; they hadn't. But um, you were right. I had a great, I had a great time doing that radio show. Cape Who is called Poor People's Radio, and uh, it was wonderful because we reached out to the community. There are lots of community, uh, like lists, like cable, like cable community stations. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of, of community people having their own shows. So it was really wonderful that station, mm-hmm. and I I I did meet Halifu in her dance class. It was really funny because I had seen her dance in New York when she was at a, a Pharoah Sanders concert, and I had seen her just all of a sudden jump up in the audience and start dancing. I said, "I wonder who that woman is. She's remarkable." I got to San Francisco and I saw a sign for Haitian dance. I said, well, I haven't studied Haitian dance. I've studied Cuban and Brazilian, but I haven't taken any Haitian. And all those black people are in Haiti, I should take that class. <laughs> so I um, so I signed up for that class. And lo and behold, who was teaching me about the woman I had seen in New York dancing? Mm-hmm. So it was Halifa who was teaching that class. And I thought it was serendipitous, and the guy had ordained that I should be her friend. Mm, interesting. And and that story about uh, her seeing me dance in New York uh, with Pharoah Saunders as a spontaneous dance improvisation is something I had totally forgotten. Uh, I do write about in the book of working with Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry at the Artist House Mm -hmm. back in 1972, but I had forgotten that scene uh, with Pharoah Saunders. So when Zaki reminded me of it, and that's the first time that she... Uh, had seen me dance, that that brought back a whole other level of memory of uh, our first connection right here in New York. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of relationships, and there are different ways that friendships can be intimate, and and uh, it could be again because of collaborations. It could be with regards to complementarity in in people's personalities or even, you know, oppositionality. So what is it about your friendship that um, kept it going for so long? There are things that I read in your book and in her book. And by the way, I'm talking about Wild Beauty, the new and selected poems of Intozake Shange. You were both survivalists. You had to survive. You had to push the boundaries, both of you. And we will get into that further in our conversation. You know, but what was what was that thing that 
kept your relationship together? I mean, through the years, through collaborations, through distance and geography, it's uh. it's very interesting to have two sisters, two elders, talk about their time together. And I think it's a thing that a lot of young women would, would like to hear about. Well, one of the things that has sustained my part of my relationship with Alifu is, is her stability. She's always been there for me in the sense that I could count on her not to be out of her mind <laughs> if I needed to talk to somebody. And um, so that was always very helpful. Mm. And the fact that she was into meditation, transcendental meditation, and introduced me to it uh, gave me another level I could talk to her about. And she would know, she knew how to, to address my needs to do to meditate. A lot of times I would call it because I hadn't been meditating. Uh-huh. And um, she would say, Zaki, have you taken care of yourself? Meaning had I been meditating? Mm-hmm. And I'd say, well, no, I have not. And she'd say, well, why don't you try that? <laughs> and so then I would try that. And it would go away again. And then I, and also she would help me with interpersonal relationships. I would call her the thralls of some tumultuous, awful relationship, and she'd say, why are you doing that? And i go, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. That's why I'm calling you. And she'd say, well, I think maybe you should reconsider that relationship, Zaki. That's not so good for you. And so I would go away from it. I would think about it and go away from it. And so that's one of the things that kept me involved with her. And plus, it's always so wonderful to be able to be friends with somebody you work with. Because a lot of times you work with somebody and you cannot be their friend. You mm-hmm. simply cannot. They're not the kind of people you want to be around when you're not working. Or they're not the kind of people who are good for you when you're not working. And so Halifu was somebody I could work with and talk to and have fun with and discover things with. Mm-hmm. And that's very rare. And so that was very cherished for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I think uh, Intazaki. Oh, I call it Zaki. That that's that's my my personal name. I hardly ever say Intazaki, but um, she uh, she makes me sound like I was her psychiatrist or something. Uh-huh. But uh, I we we were really and always have been, you know, first and foremost friends. And uh, I, uh, you mentioned uh, the word challenge. We, we, we had to challenge a lot of things, and, and uh, that, I think, was one of the, the uh, attributes that really um, brought us together. We were both challenging norms uh, in terms of our way we were dealing with our art, and we were exploring and... Um, definitely, I was writing poetry as well, and I was always interested in how uh, how movement and the word really intersected and, and, and enhanced each other. And she was obviously interested in that as well, because she's always been very much interested in dance. And, you know, she's naturally, you know, a, a prolific writer. So um, we began to explore that and, and to um, really find ways in which we could collaborate in performance. I would do dance improvs to her to her poetry. Um, we would bring up themes that uh, was oftentimes um, 
taboo. But we were willing to put ourselves out there and to challenge those norms and to um, find ways of of uh, bringing our two artistic forms together. And I learned so much about how spoken word relates to movement through Entezaki. And I know that she got a lot out of of uh, dancing with me and and exploring that in relationship to the the themes and the ideas that was coming out through her verse. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, it was definitely a, a, a friendship in a lot of ways made in heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, as artists, the idea that we were willing to challenge and explore beyond the norms is what I think really kept that that um, that developing friendship moving along. Mm. Born Janice Miller, Halifu Osumare has recounted how you gave her her African name in dancing in yes. blackness. What was it that you saw in her personality that led you to knowing that her African name is Halifu Osumare? Um, it makes you be, uh, it makes you believe that. Um, I was, I would look at her and I would see this lithe, long creature and I would say to myself, how do I get her essence in her name? And the thing that occurred to me that she was built like an arrow. She was built like an arrow in a quiver. And I said to myself, is there such a word that I can find in, in Yoruba? A Swahili or Hausa. And I found one in a Yoruba Name Your Child book. And <laughs> and I and I, I picked it out. I, I, said, I said arrow. And I said, oh, good. And so I said, so it's, the word was Halifu. I said, wow, that's wonderful. I found arrow. That's what I wanted. And I said, well, she has to have a last name. She's not born out of wedlock. <laughs> and uh, I said, so she has to have a last name. So I said, well, what could be her last name? And then I said to myself, well, she's like, she's like a panoply of colors because her moods change and her, her activities change and she takes on different aspects of her arts at different times of the day. And I said, well, she's like a rainbow. And I found the word for rainbow and it's Osamare. Mm -hmm. And so I said, Halifu Osamare, that's perfect. The arrow in the rainbow. I said, that's wonderful. Because that means she's darting through the universe. She's darting through all the colors of our lives. She's darting through all that can be. And I said, maybe I can give her that name. Mm -hmm. I, I liked it. Mm -hmm. And you liked it as well. Well, yes, uh, but it was definitely, um, uh, it, it was something that really kind of jolted me in a lot of ways uh, because we were giving each other African names during that time as a way of, uh, again, trying to reconnect with our African heritage and legacy and to rid ourselves of what we then call our slave names. Um, and when she gave it to me, written down on a piece of paper, she also allowed me to have a choice whether or not I was going to accept it. She she said, you know, this is a gift for you. If you want to keep it, I would be honored. But if you really don't, you know, don't feel obligated to keep it. Um, and 
I meditated on that name for at least a month without even telling anybody that I had received this. And when I emerged out of that that particular um, meditation on the on the name, I said, "Yes, Halifu is definitely me." And I had done further research and found that it actually had its origins in Swahili, mm-hmm. and uh, that. Halifu in Swahili actually meant the rebellious and um, wayward one in the family. Mm. And my mother told me that I was always, as I say in the very beginning Mm. of my book, a headstrong child Mm. with my own mind. (laughs) And so I said, you know, Entezaki has really hit on something. This is this is who I am. This is my destiny. I've always been rebellious. I've always gone my own way. And so I started calling myself as a performer Halifu, just one name. I did not immediately take on uh Oshimare. And um that I became like Beyonce today. <laughs> One name, you know. Halifu. And and I and I performed under that name and Intazaki actually performed with me with uh, other dancers in a show that I put together called The Evolution of Black Dance. Mm-hmm. And um at a certain point, just like she says, um I wasn't born out of wedlock. I realized mm-hmm. that I I did I, I did need to legitimize myself with a last name. And so I said, well, she's given me that last name, Oshimare, and in fact, you know, I, I do feel like the rainbow. Mm-hmm. And um, as I mentioned in the book, when I finally did uh, arrive in Nigeria some years later, and they said, oh, you, you, your, your name is Oshimare, and where did you get that name? And do you know what it means? And when I answered correctly, they said, oh, well, you are welcome. Mm-hmm. And I have maintained it ever since. When I went back to graduate school, they they said, "Well, you cannot carry an AKA and two different names. You got to choose." And of course, my choice was Halifu Oshimare. Mm-hmm. And from then on, my professional name was that, and I am most grateful to Intazaki for having perceived that in me and actually called me who I am. Mm-hmm. Um Intozake means she who brings her own things. Mm-hmm. And Shange means one who walks with lions. And you have walked with lions, a lioness, mm-hmm. a lion. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's one thing you'd like to say to your sister, what would it be? To Halifu? To Halifu. Yes. Oh, well, I was saying what to her, like to, to you. <laughs> but it's okay, no, we can take both of you. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to say to, to Halifu that I love you. You've been a great inspiration to me and a great support. And I've watched you blossom and grow and take on new challenges for yourself. It's made me very proud and very grateful to you for being who you are. Thank you. And, and and I just simply say thank you. Thank you for being my friend and thank you for recognizing who I am and finding those qualities within yourself that brought us together. Because when I hear your name, 
and the meaning of my name, it's very clear that it was meant and it was destiny. Mm. Thanks to both of you. Being women, young, black and gifted, and growing up at a historical moment when your society was going through major social upheavals, the civil rights movement um, in which African people were demanding recognition for their humanity and their personhood, gender and sexual revolutions, and so on, both locally here in the United States and globally. The rebelliousness which you both expressed through your personalities, your creative endeavors, and which you have written about, can you share some of that, some of your thoughts about that period? Do you want to go right, first? Well, um, my parents were what they used to call race people. And that meant that they were committed to black people in a political and economic way. And so we were always supporters of the NACP, the Urban League, and Dr. Martin Luther King. And so we would contribute money, we would show up at demonstrations and at meetings, and I was always taken to these things. So I was very familiar with political talk. And um, when we began to have marches and demonstrations in the North, my father took us, took, well, he took me, the oldest, with my mother, and we would go. We went to the March on Washington, and I recently ran into an old boyfriend of mine who said to me, he's in his 70s now, and he actually said to me, you know, if it hadn't been for you, I would never have gone to the March on Washington. And I said, well, I was 14 years old. You know, how would I have influenced you? You're 18. You were 18 at the time. He said, well, I wasn't political until I met you. And so we had influences on other black people in a way that you never would have suspected. And so we went to the March on Washington. I remember it was the first time I had ever seen that many black people all together. It was an amazing, wonderful thing. And to hear Adam Clayton Powell and Bayard Rustin and all these people I had, and A. Philip Randolph, all these people I had heard about, to be in their presence and to hear them talk, it was such a phenomenal thing to me. And so as a teenager, I was very, very, very committed to the civil rights movement. The only problem I had is I didn't know why they kept sending the children. I kept saying, why are they sending us to fight their battles? Why don't they do it themselves? They're grown-ups. Why are they sending these children? And I never understood that until the Freedom Riders came in the buses. That's when I decided I wanted to ride on the Freedom Riders. I want to get on the buses and go integrate the, 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 the trans the interstate restaurants. Mm. I, want to, I want to do that because that seemed to be really important. And I told my mother I was going to go ride on the Freedom Riders, and she said, oh, no, you're not. You are not going to ride with the Freedom Riders. You could die. I said, we could die here. <laughs> you don't have to go on the Freedom Riders. I can die if I walk outside. And she said, well, you're not going on the Freedom Riders. But that's what my commitment was. Then I wanted to join SNCC. That was my next thing. My next thing was to join SNCC and go sit in at lunch counters in the South. She said, there are enough students there to do that. You do not need to go do that. And I said, yes, I do. They need more help. They need more people. She said, you are not going. You are 15 years old. You're going to stay here. And I said, oh, no, I'm not. So I organized people at my school, and we got put out of school. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sounds like some of the youth, youth today. Yep. yep. <laughs> and we got put out of school, and I said, oh, my goodness. What's going to come of me? I can't contribute to the race this way. And so I had to wait till I graduated from high school. My first job, my friend, my first job, my first voluntary activity after graduating from high school was to work in a stick office. And my boss was Kathleen Cleaver. Wow. She was Kathleen Neal then. She was, my boss was Kathleen Cleaver. She became Kathleen Cleaver. And all I did was stamp envelopes and answer the phone while I was working for SNCC. I was helping SNCC raise money. So I felt very, very, very good about that. And so then my, after that, I joined, I joined the Young Lords Party. The Black Panther Party was too misogynistic for me. And the Young Lords Party actually had a platform the end of of of, of, of machismo. That's part of their ten point program. Mm-hmm. It's the end machismo. Mm-hmm. So I was I said that's great. I will join that. I want to fight against sexism. So I joined the Young Lords Party and I worked. I had poetry readings before the political speakers would talk. So we warmed up the audience with poetry. The Pedro Pietri and Irish Rivera, Jose Figueroa, all those poets came together. Paulo Melendez. All of us came together to warm up the audience for the for the political speakers like Pablo Guzman and Pepe Luciano. So I I had a busy political career. Mm. <laughs> and 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 uh, Intazaki actually comes from a um, an upper middle class black family. I come from the on the west coast from a working class black family that really didn't think about politics. At all, they were just trying to survive, mm-hmm. and um, what really influenced me on the West Coast was the Black Power movement and the Black Arts movement that had begun here on the East Coast and was migrating west. I remember when uh, Amiri Baraka and Sonia Sanchez and and several others came and held kind of semi-public events to educate. Uh, we young black people about what was going on with the black arts movement. I remember going to University of California, Berkeley, and hearing Stokely Carmichael give his famous speech in 1966, a year after I graduated from high school, about black power and that term coming to the fore in in, in the general public discourse. So... um, uh, those are the kind of things that were influencing me on the West Coast. And I was always trying to find a way in which I could insert my dance and my exploration of dance as an art form into the so-called revolution that was going on. The Black Panthers, who started in Oakland, was very prominent in, in uh, our area, of, obviously. And um, I decided that I would take my again my production the evolution of black dance to the black panthers headquarters in east oakland and uh insert them into the um the sunday showcases that they would have um so besides all the other programs that they were doing including their 10 point program um they would have these community events on sunday almost like a community uh um revival with with poets and musicians and orators, and I brought my dance. And they really 
uh, felt good about that. They they accepted it, and oftentimes my productions were um, were actually reviewed in the Black Panther newspaper. So for me, the 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 inroad into the political revolution that was going on was more from the Black Power movement that was parallel to the civil rights movement and kind mm -hmm. of grew out of that. Uh, and and the West Coast, uh, contrary to many people on the East Coast, was a, was uh, their thoughts about that was that it was very fervent and there was a lot going on in the, it's particularly in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area around those issues of the of the relationship between the Black Power movement and the Black Arts movement. And how how do you see young people um, responding to the upheavals today of their own time? Um, in what ways do you see the parallels to your to your period? You know, we're talking forty, fifty years after we're back to Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I see uh, just piggybacking on that particular movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, is like Ndizaki was saying, the um, the sexism and misogynistic attitudes that was a part of both the civil rights and the black power movement um, is, is definitely has been challenged and women are at the forefront. In fact, the Black Lives Matter movement was started by three uh, black, black women. women yeah. Um, and that were connected through social media, and, and it grew out of that. So I think that um, definitely the insertion of the black woman into current-day uh, black young black politics is a, a, a completely new kind of wave. And secondly, I think that the, the use of performance um, within demonstrations is something that I'm really seeing as something new. The die-ins that are happening where they kind of replicate um, the, 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 uh, the ways in which young black men are, are being left out in the streets after being um, killed uh, by police uh, when they are, uh, were unarmed. Uh, and and rep trying to replicate that as a performance. Um, the use of of a, of, a, of a kind of coming together and in in performance in resistance to um, authority, I can see that going on also in the the current day movement in Oakland. Just recently, um, there was through this this issue of gentrification and the conflicts between cultures, there was some kind of a, a, a calling of of the police on people who were just barbecuing outside or something, you know, mm -hmm. something ridiculous mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that. And the, and the community came together. And what did they do? They say, we're not only going to have simultaneous barbecues, but we're going to do the electric slide. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and came together around that. So I'm, I'm just, I, I, I'm, my, my point is that performance um, as a way of, of uh, resisting these ridiculous kinds of um, uh, actions by authorities to uh, try to quell black culture today is um, a, a, a new kind of method that I particularly like, and it really shows the ridiculousness of some of these issues that are coming up. Mm -hmm. Well, I was um, just recently asked to review 
not to just write a blurb for a young black woman to write. Her name is Mecca Jamila Sullivan, and she writes beautifully, and she writes about black gay life in a way that is is revolutionary, I think, because she she incorporates the delicacy of language at the same time she's able to reveal the brutality of the of the kinds of of stress they live under, and th there's a story that's a true story that she writes about where these five or six black women are arrested and humiliated and beaten because the reason they were arrested was because they were loud. And we know from looking at statistics that young black mm -hmm. girls are suspended from school not for delinquency mm -hmm. or for being ridiculous things like with a knife or something. Mm -hmm. They're suspended for being loud and raucous. Oh, for having nappy hair. <laughs> no, or for having nappy hair. Mm -hmm. But this, the, what I was concerned about was that their voices vocalizing their their emotions and their thoughts was enough to get them suspended, and was enough to get those adults beaten up. And so it's very it's very tragic to me that 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 young black girls are being silenced in, in a very brutal way these days. And so it's very important for us to stand up for them and to write for them, and to fight for them. Mm -hmm. mm. Body dysmorphic disorder is a common issue with dancers. But there's a growing awareness of a relatively new provocative phrase, uh, but not the phenomenon itself. As a matter of fact, you had, you're, in your last statement, you sort of like preceded what mm -hmm. I was going to ask talk about. I call it social dysmorphic disorder. The phrase which I was referring to is personal racism valet. I don't know if you've heard of that phrase. It's a relatively new term. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking of it as sort of a, a social dysmorphic disorder, which refers to white Americans who basically feel that anyone who is not white is, is sort of there for them to control to manipulate and they often do this by calling the police on mm. black bodies mm -hmm. um, so the control and manipulation of non-white bodies is something that you both of you have had to deal with in your struggles in your careers in your writings and other creative endeavors um, do you suppose we need a national dialogue around this issue or um, people just need to get themselves together? Well, um, I think both. <laughs> all, all, uh, I think all of those levels need to be uh, dealt with simultaneously. Uh, if we see these incidences of what I call a ridiculous um, um, interjections by white people into trying to surveil and and curtail uh, what black people do normally during during the course of a day uh, then there has to be some kind of a, a national dialogue about that and and it it to me it goes right along with the way in which African peoples have been seen. Um, and utilized in this country from the very beginning. It, after we could no longer be free labor, then we become 
um, surveilled and curtailed within um, certain kinds of communities that uh, that uh, really becomes a a policing of black people that we see in various aberrations today. It during the Reconstruction period, we, uh, we, we saw that happen. Once Reconstruction was over, the, the kinds of uh, violence and surveillance of the black body became, you know, rampant. And uh, with the Northern Movement um, and the Great Migrations, um, uh, people were cur uh, curtailed and corralled into these, these uh, entities called projects. Mm -hmm. um, so these, th th this history is all a part of the, the attempted um, man manipulation um, and the corralling of black people. Um, and of course we continually need a, a national dialogue about it, but it, 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 it actually has to stop. And I think that once we have the media really um, call, especially a lot of these ridiculous incidences that are happening on a daily basis now, that um, that will help us to uh, begin to, I feel, have individuals really look at themselves because all those levels have to happen simultaneously. My guests are authors of two very special books, Dancing in Blackness, a memoir by Halifu Osumare, and Wild Beauty, and New and Selected Poems by Intozake Shange. This is a, a question that I, I really had to figure out a way to ask Miss Shange. It's about language. Much has been written about your use of language, but I found a quote that I thought was interesting that sort of like captures where I was trying to go with it. And in that quote, you were asked, what if poetry isn't enough? And your response was, you have to keep acting like it's enough. Mm -hmm. You have to keep affirming it and bringing yourself to it. You have to keep hoping that it would move the mountain. But my feeling after having read that is that you were not quite satisfied with that answer yourself. Well, I think... It's a continual struggle. It's a continual artistic challenge to make the writing powerful enough so that it will change somebody's soul. It will change somebody's heart. It will move someone to do something. It will spark something in them that will change the world. I have to keep trying, keep believing that at one point the phone will do that to somebody and that will, that will be the starting point of a new movement. It will be the starting point of a new revolution in a person's life be the starting point of someone saying, I can do this, or someone saying, I'm not going to take this anymore. It, when it can do that, it, it's working to me, for me, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. It's when it doesn't affect someone that I worry, and I feel defeated, I feel um, not worthless, but like a failure. And so I have to keep trying to approach it so that I know that at some point it's going to move someone. It's going to challenge them to be something more than they thought they were. And if I can do that, I have done my job. You have um, traveled widely. 
in Africa. I'm very curious, and, and this question is, is to you as well, whether or not you've been in Africa. Actually, I have. Okay, great. In your encounters with African women, either in your travels on the continent or even here in the United States, um, I'm referring to Af continental African sisters, how were you perceived by them? Hmm. Uh -huh. Well, it depends on what language I'm speaking. Um, sometimes I'm perceived as an American. I can't get around that. Um, and it's very, it's very condescending, or else it's very um, dismissive, and um, that, that's very hurtful to me because I, I'm not, I don't feel like an American. I don't feel like the ugly American. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not there for that. I'm there to learn and to share, and to be supportive of local arts and crafts, and local artists of of fine arts, and to find out the political situation in that place at that time. Um, otherwise, if, if we're speaking French, I speak fairly good French, so I'm accepted more readily. And, and they assume I'm Martinican. So so I'm, I'm, I'm not treated so badly in, 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 in French-speaking countries. English-speaking countries, I have a problem more <laughs> often than not. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I found that when I work with women, now, that's not true when I'm talking to women. That's mostly with men. When I'm working with women, for the most part, I find that my reception is very good, and I find them to be very, very powerful and very um, creative in their business dealings or in their artistic activity. And I, I've been very impressed with African women. Mm -hmm. I, I think for me, um, it... it uh, had to do with the particular country I was visiting in terms of the reception that I got and also the educational level of of the the person that I was interacting with. For example, in Ghana, at the University of Ghana, Legon, um, where I was interacting with professors and uh, students who uh, understood the connection with the African diaspora. Um, it was um, a, a very accepting attitude and uh, a, a, a uh, important dialogue and exchange that was going on between us um, because we kind of bought into a kind of pan-Africanism that, uh, uh, um, that is a, a part of our world. However, if I went out to um, the hinterlands and to the villages, oftentimes where they had uh, at that time, in the late 70s, when I first went to West Africa, had seen very few African Americans, then there was not a sense of that, uh, that connection. And, and in, uh, and in Ghana, in particular, oftentimes they would call me white woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, they would call me a white guy in Lagos, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Obruni. That was the, that was the name in, in, uh, in, uh, in Tree. In uh, in Ghana, and so I would say, well, now uh, we gotta we gotta come to terms with this because um, I if you don't accept me as African like you, there still has to be another word because <laughs> I'm definitely not white. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so that was the way I kind of jokingly dealt with that 
uh, in there. But when I went to Nigeria, where there was many more different ethnic groups of various shades and colors, um, I was called Fulani. So um, the it, I, I found that it depend on their uh, their um, experience and relationship and how they perceive me and my look. Mm -hmm. um, that then became a part of um, how I was received and um, how I was re, uh, re recepted in different parts of uh, of, uh, of Africa. But um, I, I would I would also mention that I didn't go looking for a kind of genetic connection. I was looking for a cultural connection, mm -hmm. and what really when when I connected with the women and the men the most was when I danced. When I danced, and I had already studied many of the ethnic dances of Ghana, Nigeria, and that that's when there was communication, the, the deepest communication, because it transcended language, it transcended uh, nationality, we saw that there was something that was connecting us and they could see that the rhythm in my body and the rhythm in their body was very similar. Mm -hmm. And so, and so uh, um, dance for me was, was the connection as I mentioned in my, in my book and it was, it's a part of how I explain what blackness is. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing that happened for me. Uh, it happened for me in the Western Hemisphere because I could dance all the dances of all the black people in the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So when I would go to Curacao or Puerto Rico or Mexico or Brazil, I met, my sister used to say I would outdance the Brazilians mm -hmm. <laughs> because I could do, I had studied all these things and I found that when I could dance the dance, people would accept me mm -hmm. and would approach me as one of them. Mm -hmm. And I could make friends. I made some of my very good friends from having danced with them. As a, as a young girl or a young woman, and I, I still have them as my friends in Martinique, in Trinidad, mm -hmm. in Curacao, in um, Saba, and all these different islands and places, because as a true daughter of the diaspora, one of my first commitments was to understand my hemisphere, to understand where we as slaves came, where we, where we were, and what we did, and how we lived. And so I wanted to know about all of us, because I was thinking, my 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 bone marrow match might be in Uruguay, my bone marrow match might be in Mexico, mm -hmm. because that's we don't know where the slaves went mm -hmm. and who were related to. Mm -hmm. So I I might have all these connections that are that are genetic, but also that are cultural, mm -hmm. and I wanted to share that with myself, uh, with myself, ha. Ah! <laughs> I wanted to share that with them, myself with them, mm -hmm. and also have them share with me, and I could do that most easily in dance. And then when I joined several unions, several poetry unions in Nicaragua and Brazil and Mexico, I was able to interact with the poets mm -hmm. and writers, because I had read them in English in, when I was in the States, but I met them in person and could converse with them in Spanish or Portuguese, I had a wonderful time. I met so many noted authors and poets who we read here in the United States but never get to interact with because we don't go there and seek them out. Mm -hmm. 
and as a coda to that, uh, I'd like to mention that when I leave New York, um, I'm going to deliver a keynote address at the third biennial international dance conference in Barbados. Uh, at the University of West Indies, and the 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 whole topic of the conference is decolonizing the body mm. by engaging performance, mm. and so I'm going to be um, my uh, uh, opening keynote address for the conference is going to be um, de decolonizing the body through dancing and blackness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Wonderful title. When is that, uh, Oh, it, it starts on the 23rd of May. So as mm -hmm. soon as I leave New York, wow. You're heading out to I, I'm heading there. And, and, and I also would like to mention that um, this, um, this book tour that I'm on in particular will continue on, uh, on the uh, Friday, May 18th at 6.30 at Gavin Brown in Enterprises Gallery in Harlem. Mm -hmm. um, and then on Monday, May 21st at 7.30 at Greenlight Books in Brooklyn with um, the Urban Bushwomen's none other than Jawale Willa-Jo Zolar, who is also mentioned in my book and has uh, contributed so much to um, our dance culture in the United States. So um, I'm going to be interacting with her and uh, also at Gavin Brown on Friday the 18th. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really trying to get this out there. And starting here with Intazaki and, with, and my, my dear friend uh, is um, just something that is beyond compare. Well... I wish you could take me with you uh, <laughs> to Barbados. <laughs> um, uh, as diasporan Africans and um, feminists, um, how did you perceive African women coming from a culture that is very different from yours, um, on the one hand, remote, but inescapable on the other? Hmm. I thought we did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this one is about how you see them as feminists oh. with your historical experience oh. and your ethnicity as a diaspora and African. Okay. Um, and your expectations as well. Okay. See, you as a diaspora and African going to the continent it, it's arguable that you have some sort of aspiration. There's, there's something that needs to be met, right? On the other hand, they that are at home receiving you have no such aspiration, so to speak. Um, and then coming from a different culture, uh, at, the, at the time that you were growing up, you know, let me rephrase, uh, Afrobeat music, was a crucible of black politics, jazz music, West African high life, and other kinds of music. It fused at a time when after Fela Kuti had returned to Nigeria after staying in LA in the United States and traveling in the United States. But what made it distinctive was the influence of black power politics, the, conf the confrontational politics, 
that was a, as a result of uh, African experiences in, in, in the United States. Um, again, going back to the question of this struggle to, to reclaim our humanity, to um, reclaim our personhood. Back home, the politics is different. You know, we have some of the same crap going on, but we're, we, we're not confrontational. We are specialists at stabbing ourselves in the back. Um, we're very quiet at how we undermine ourselves. The gift of, of that period of civil rights movement and black power movement was that everything became extraverted, so to speak. You know, so when uh, a, a black American person arrives on the continent, right, you are perceived differently because you are bringing a different kind of culture, a different kind of uh, body movement, so to speak. You know, and I think you will understand this as, as dancers. So, so that's the difference between the two qu questions. That uh, as you as active feminists. Right in a society where women have their way of taking care of business, but it's different from the way that culturally you're doing it in the United States. Mm. Well, what I perceived when I first went to um, to Ghana, this was 1976, so that was um, uh, you know a different p time period than than now. Um, was that um, definitely I was seen as a uh, a woman who had the courage to to travel all these thousands of miles by myself <laughs> without a man and uh, and to insert myself into the culture in various in various ways again at the university I was not so much an anomaly but once I went out into the countryside and to the villages, which I did, uh, went to all the regions of Ghana, then I really stood out as a, uh, uh, an independent black woman that um, many of the, the women that I was interacting with had never really seen before in that kind of way. Um, but again, what I found that uh, was if I explained myself and why I was there and that I really wanted to um, find my roots. I wanted to have an, in, uh, an honest interaction, especially through the dance and the music, that I was, I was accepted by both men and women mm -hmm. because what was necessary was an honest kind of rendering of who I was and and why why I was there. So I kind of call myself an ambassador of the African diaspora, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. why, uh, in 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 my in my beginning journeys. But I did definitely feel that there was major differences between me and and uh, the women that I was in contact with. They, but I I must say that what I observe, especially when I went to villages, is that the women always had their their own sphere of influence. They always had their own organizations that I could interact with mm -hmm. um, that was equally important within the whole uh, societal structure. 
So I appreciated that. But as an individual woman, I felt that I really stood out and that many of them could never perceive of themselves mm -hmm. as going um, uh, as far as I had gone personally and, and striking out on their own. So there was, I, I brought a sense of a new kind of black woman, mm -hmm. I think, to to the African women that I was interacting with. I mm -hmm. found that to be true even in South Africa because as modern as South Africa is, the women in South Africa, when you go to the townships or you go in the country, um, they're very, they're actually oppressed and they're very, they're so poor. They spend all their time trying to find water and get the little food they can get and they look for American products for their children to cost so much money and they don't need them but they want them because they think that makes them better off and so there's a consumerism that's dumbfounding and um, and they, they, would, they would approach me for money and to get them things and uh, I found that to be very sad that they didn't want to talk to me they wanted me to buy them a pamper or buy mm -hmm. them some pencils and um, I knew what they needed them for but that's not what I was there for and that's not who I was I wasn't AID and, uh, <laughs> and so that was difficult and also I, it, South Africa is essentially a rape culture just like the United States is a rape culture I had several instances where I was afraid because uh, the men circled me like they did in the South Bronx that time in the, when they were in the swimming pool and they chased that young girl around the swimming pool until her, her, her top fell off and they tried to rape her in the pool. I was chased around the lobby of a theater by a circle of men and, and it was so awful that this white South African man had to come get me and save me from the black men who were chasing me around. Mm -hmm. And it was just awful. And that happened several times. Not exactly that way, but it was that kind of ferocity and perniciousness. And, and, the, and South African women are raped at a much greater rate than other African women on the continent. Mm -hmm. And so I, I found that to be not only true, but scary. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's something, an element there. Otherwise, when I, encounter, when I was working, I was working with a theater company there who was working <coughs> on a play I was doing with Joseph Shalalala and Lisa Mambaza. And I was working with some young people who were going to be in the show. And uh, they, were very, they were full of life and hope and, 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 and vivacity. So those young women were safe. Those are very particular and a very small group of young black women. That wasn't young black girls in the townships. Mm -hmm. They had been rescued from the townships. And so I worry about mm -hmm. people like that. On the other hand, in the Ivory Coast or Senegal, in the Ivory Coast before the war, they used to have an ice skating rink. <laughs> and you could go ice skating in Abidjan. <laughs> and uh, and in, in Senegal, you could go read poetry in these poetry cafes. It's all very French and very very um, sophisticated. And so I got along fine there. I had no problem. And everybody thought they were French. Mm. So, <laughs> so, um, yeah. it, I think it's very, it, it is, can be very regional in terms of mm -hmm. how 
uh, how women are are perceived. Um, and like in 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 uh, Accra, I could go in at night by myself as a as a a single woman uh, and and not have to fear at all. But I would never do that in Lagos, <laughs> you know. So the the there are definitely regional differences in terms of um, your your sense of being a uh, a female. Um, from the United States in an Africa, it all depends on where you are and um, how connected you are to, you know, the the lo some of the local people. Very true. Um, Lagos is certainly a very macho culture, very macho, very hyper masculine in, in right, some ways. Right. Is it that you're a feminist or that you're a black feminist? Yes, that. When I think about the dialogue around feminism and who controls that dialogue um, in the United States, and I am a bit familiar with the discourse and understand the contributions, the foundational contributions of African women, of black women, to that discourse and understand that much of that has been appropriated by a certain class of women, upper-class white women. Um, the example that comes to mind uh, contemporaneously is the Me Too movement, which was started by a black woman, and which has now been appropriated by a, a, an upper-class white woman for their own purpose, it becomes very important to ask that question, not in a divisive manner in a saying that one is pitting one group of women against the other, but in particular in the idea of reclaiming, reclaiming, you know, the movement, the meanings, uh, especially because for both of you, your work has centered around the reclamation of memory for black people, uh, for African people, for black women. You want to tackle that, Zaki? Yeah. Um, I've been asked this question for the last 40 years. <laughs> and my answer has always sort of been the same. Um, I was born black and female at the same time. And my first encounters with oppression were as a girl. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a feminist, I would say, I, I can't even say first or second. I'm a feminist and I'm black simultaneously because they, I encountered them both. Uh, I encountered racism in kindergarten. I encountered sexism when I was born because I was raised by a patriarch. So I, I, I had no choice. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, was named, I was named after my father. My name was Little Paul. It was, it, when he translated with my middle name, a little pretty. So little pretty became, as opposed to, say, king, like Ray, or Roy, or queen, like Reina. Uh, my name was little pretty, which is, like, cute. <laughs> and how can you be, how can you aspire to be cute? And uh, so I was left with a name that had no meaning. And it had, and it had nothing to do with me. It was, it was my father's diminutive name. Mm. And I and I and so and also I wasn't expected to do much because 
I was a girl. I was raised to be a good housewife. And I was supposed to go to college so I'd be able to have good cocktail parties and, and entertain my husband's guests at night. And I, and, uh, and, <laughs> and when I grew up and became a wife, I said to myself, my father sent me to school and spent all that money for me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I said, he must have been out of his mind. This is an ascent. And um, so anyway, no, no. I, I believe in, in education for girls. I believe in the strength of girls. I think it's important that young girls of color be given a good sense of who their, their culture is and how they can use their culture to strengthen themselves and to strengthen other people. But they must always remember that as girls, they have a, they have a special, special duty and responsibility to one another for their own safety, for their own sustenance, their own spiritual growth. And uh, I, I see, you know, on, on the larger scale that so much of what black people start gets usurped. And um, that's why particularly in the 80s, there was a need for um, a lot of black feminists to really claim a sense of womanness. Uh, people like Michelle Wallace and um, um, Bell Hooks and, you know, and, and many others, because oftentimes we were left out of the, the uh, discourse that was emerging uh, in terms of feminism. But personally, I, being the independent one in the rainbow, I've always claimed myself as a, as a woman, as a black woman, and as a human being. And, and I've always been steeped in that. And that's, I, I, I think, going back to what Zaki had to say about our relationship in the beginning, is that um, I always had that kind of centeredness in me. I never let anyone tell me that I couldn't do something, that I couldn't be who I wanted to be, whether it was a male, like my, my, uh, my stepfather, or whether it was a white woman. And so I claim my, myself as a human being, and all of that is contained in, in, in me, my blackness, my womanhood, my beingness. And, um, you know, I think that if each one of us began to come from that solid, centered place, no one will be able to manipulate you, mm. you know, uh, in terms of any sexism, racism, or anything, because you define yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, and if each person takes that um, that to task and defines themselves and do, and and do not allow themselves to be in any way be manipulated, the world will be a better place. Right. That's, mm. the, that's the one thing I forgot. I have about feminism. I was thinking, I define what feminism is. There is no voice other than mine when it comes to defining what feminism is. I speak for myself. And they do not speak for me. I am my own voice about what feminism is. People can listen to me or not. But I have a, a point of view and I have a position and that's what I'm going to stick to. And no one can usurp that from me. 
Because I haven't. And if you look at the two titles of our book, Dancing in Blackness and Wild Beauty, you have it right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies. Um, it's been a great honor to be your presence, to talk to you. Well, that's our show for today. And yes. thank you so much. You we much. really appreciate the dialogue. Thank you. I hope this is uh, edifying for our listeners. I believe it will be, and um, especially I hope that there are many, 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 many